Hey everybody, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jonathan. And we are the Evangelicals. So today is not a part two necessarily from last episode, but it is a continuation in a way of a conversation that we started last time when we were talking about God interacting with us. The, the question we asked last time was, does God speak to us? Is it possible that we could interact with God in this life? And we did. We talked about, we talked about the mystical. We talked about God revealing himself. We talked about the Holy Spirit. We talked about nudges, these these different things in scripture. Today, we're going to talk about, we're going, we're assuming that God does talk to us. Yeah. And we're going to talk about sort of the, the ways that we might be limiting or clouding, obstructing that voice of God. Is that fair? Yeah, totally fair. I think that as we go through life, we, we put on lenses maybe on how we see the world and so it could be a Republican lens or it could be uh, Democratic glasses, I guess would be a better way. And so everything, how we, the, the point of view from which we see all of issues, all of life goes through those lenses. And unfortunately, sometimes those lenses can limit maybe uh, how God might be choosing to speak to us because we're seeing it from that diff, from that specific point of view. And so there may be times that if I am a Republican conservative, I could think there's no way God could use a Democrat to do anything or to speak to me in the world because I've closed myself off from even believing that God could use them, that God is is maybe even somehow working through them. And the same can be true the other side well, as well. So it's interesting that you say that. I think that we are very heightened to the political polarization going on in America, but there are plenty of lenses that... Or, or filters or limits that we put on hearing from people. So I, I grew up uh, not like ultra conservative, but with this kind of understanding that that women don't preach necessarily. Yeah, and there are there are people that that really believe because of Paul's words to Timothy that women shouldn't talk in the church. That when a woman stands up to preach, they actually don't even they don't assume that they could hear from God, even though you know the prophet Joel says that in the last days women are going to prophesy and this is going to be evidence of the spirit of God being poured out. Just saying, just but, saying. but, but they're really, but that's, that's a limiter or, um, people, uh, race, race is something. Ethnicity, that race. We, we really do. Yeah. We, we do have this problem where we say too often those people, and this is in your town. This isn't just like, we're not just talking national, we're talking the people on the other side of the tracks in your own town. We're talking the people that go to the other school district. We're talking that family. I mean, you, you, we, we all do this. We say we assume that we know before we go, we before we even are a part of the story. We assume that we know the end because we assume that we know who these people are or what they're saying. And unfortunately, we see this throughout history. You know, I grew up in the South, and during the Civil Rights Movement, you had. Caucasian evangelical pastors who were using the Bible because they had a another framework or another gl- pair of glasses they were looking at promoting the segregation, promoting that that African Americans were lesser than human, and so it, it, it's just, it's amazing that we don't see how pastors the church has used um, has limited potentially 
where God might be speaking, how God might be be saying things to the church because we choose to close ourselves off from that. And it's interesting. There's probably a story that you would get a hundred guesses and you'd never guess this is the story we're going to talk about, or at least begin with. But there's a story in the book of Judges about a judge named Deborah. And it's interesting because the story of Deborah comes after a story about a left-handed guy who once again was probably never believed that God could use him, but we're not going to talk about that one today. But Deborah was a woman. And in this cultural context, women uh, were definitely not viewed as equal to men. Uh, Deborah's the only judge in the whole book of Judges that is also called a prophet, which in that time was a spokesperson for God, someone who would preach or give a word for the Lord. Kind of a mediator between I mean, God and the people. Exactly. And, and, and so we have this story right in the middle of, or in the beginning of the book of Judges, that kind of blows up all of the cultural context about how we hear from God and who God would choose to use to bring about the deliverance for his people. And uh, and that's kind of what the story is about, is once again, blowing up. You think God is can only talk like this. You think God can only speak like this. Well, I'm going to show you that he might actually choose to use all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. Let me read some of the text. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start reading in Judges chapter 4, verse 4. Deborah wife of Lapidot, was a prophetess. She led Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites would come to her for decisions. She summoned Barak, son of Abinoam of Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go, march up to Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from Naphtali and Zebulun. And I will draw Sisera, Jabin's army commander, with his chariots and his troops, toward you up to the Wadi Kishan, and I will deliver him into your hands. But Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. If not, I will not go. Very well, I will go with you, Deborah answered. <laughs> However, there will be no glory for you in the course you are taking, for then the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. You realize this is going to turn into a story of girl power, don't you, Barak? I mean, <laughs> you sure you want me to go with you? So Deborah went with Barak. That was my words, not the right, not, right, 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 right. Not the holy text here. Right, right, right. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak then mustered Zebulun and Naphtali at Kadesh. Ten thousand men marched up after him, and Deborah also went up with him. Yeah, so it's just this fascinating story. One, you would never have a woman telling a commander in the army, this is what you're going to do. Like It's almost an essence that, that Deborah was, was telling him, hey, I, summoning him, one, to begin with, like a woman would never summon a man to come and, and then give instruction. And it's interesting, uh, Brox or Barrick, um, you know, for all those who... Don't like our former president. We'll say Barrick, maybe. Uh, anyways, I think that that's like a real thing, isn't it? <laughs> it's such a real thing, but it kind of speaks to what we're going to be talking about today. Um, they go, they do, they they defeat the army. Uh, the commander of the army, Cesera, as you were, is running on foot, and we get this cool story at the end of the narrative and in, in the scripture where he's running and he goes among these tents and there's another woman there named Jael. She says, hey, come into my tent. I'll, I'll hide you. He's really exhausted from fighting and running. And so he goes in the tent, covers up. 
He asks Jael for a glass of water. She gives him instead some milk, which is just brilliant on many occasions. And, and he falls asleep. And this is where the Bible kind of turns rated R. It says she grabs a tent peg and a hammer. While he's asleep, she drives the tent peg through his temple, in essence, nailing him to the ground, and thus um, brings freedom. Uh, Barrett comes by, says, uh, hey, I'm looking for this guy. And she says, go look in the tent. And, um, and because of this woman's... Now, why is, is the milk thing rather than the water brilliant? Because milk makes you sleepy, <laughs> makes you tired. I, I bet if it had been a man, you know, he probably would have given the guy some water. And I'm not saying he wouldn't have gone to sleep, but how brilliant that she gave him some milk so that he would fall fast asleep so that she could then bring about once again the redemption. And, and what's interesting about Jael, she's actually a foreign woman. She's not even, even an Israelite. And so here, that's another thing that God kind of blows up in this story, or the author blows up, is that God uses a foreign woman in, in, in a, a culture and a time where foreigners were enemies and they weren't people to, to, be, to be collaborating with. They were, they were to be people that were kind of separate, kind of different. And in this story, all of the limits that the people of God might have put on God and understanding how he was going to speak to us or deliver us kind of gets blown up. <laughs> A woman who is a foreigner, a woman who is a prophet, is speaking to a man, and and all of the ways that that people may have said God can never do it this way, God can never speak this way. This story just says, actually, actually, he can. Yeah, this this makes me think about the as you're saying the the limiters that we might put on God, but also there are there are times in our lives when someone speaks to us or when someone does something in culture that we don't consider to be divine. We don't consider it to be godly at all because it's not, it's not technically something that happens in the religious sphere. But, but when you look, but when you look back, you, you wonder to yourself, you know, how involved was God in this? Uh, it happens that in this story, there are two women that become the heroines in the story I've been thinking a lot this year about the Me Too movement, really a shift in culture that has happened, the downfall of a lot of very powerful men with these stories and sexual allegations. Many of them, I would argue probably most of them, are definitely true about these just heinous acts by men with way too much power that has just been completely unchecked. Um, many conservative Christians... Conservative, not in a political sense. Uh, conservative in the sense of wanting to hold on to the way that things are. I'm not. I'm not talking about politics. I would even say the way things were. They they want to go back to this. They want to hold on to this ideology of how things used to be great, and now they maybe potentially aren't. Sorry, I just. Again, I'm not trying to. I'm not wanting to talk necessarily about the people that are wanting to make America great again. But I'm not even talking about that. I'm just talking about even people in the evangelical world when they, they look back and think, man, things were so much better when yeah. this was a part yeah, of yeah, our yeah, culture, yeah. when this wasn't or whatever so the this, case may be. This is the case that I want to make is I'm hearing, I'm hearing people say that are in my circles that, you know, it's, it's scary to be a man today or it's got to be, it's got to be tough to be a man today. You know, what in the world is going on with this Me Too movement thing? How terrible is the world? You know that anybody can kind of make an allegation and is taken seriously. 
as I look at the whole cultural shift, though, I wonder to myself whether or not this might indeed be a movement of God. No lie. I, I really just said that. An, an interesting piece of Pauline theology, as far as looking forward, the eschatology, what happens when Jesus returns, what happens when, when God comes, when the judge comes, when Jesus comes. Paul says this. He says, when he comes, he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. And the fact of the matter is, you're concerned about the Me Too movement if you have something to be concerned about. That's just the fact of the matter. Um, and we're, we're, all suscept- we're all susceptible. I'm, I'm not trying to, in some way, like, damn myself or, like, uh, I don't know, put some sort of, like, you know, <laughs> maybe I should knock on wood right now as I'm, as I'm talking about <laughs> this as a man in public ministry. But what's amazing, what, what has happened in our, in our culture is secular people who are not in the church are becoming concerned with the truth, are becoming concerned with justice. Truth and justice are good things. People should not be taken advantage of. People that are being taken advantage of ought to be able to speak up. There ought to be a voice for the voiceless. And whatever, maybe however you may be considering the Me Too movement, because of your affiliation, because of your tribe, because of your news media outlet, because of whatever it is. I don't know that many people have considered the fact that God is not just the God of the religious domain. God is the God of the world. And God doesn't just do things inside of the church. Uh, Oftentimes God moves in the world in spite of, despite the church, (laughs) you know? And, And there are some stories that I've heard of women gaining just a sense of liberation and new identity and losing fear because of the age that we're coming into. I am not someone that believes that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. I really believe that the kingdom of God is breaking in on many, many different levels. And for me to be a part of it, I think it does require a reorienting of the way that I perceive reality. I think that's really important. When Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again, he doesn't just say you need to be born again once. Nicodemus is very troubled by this. He says, how in the world can a grown man crawl back into his mother's womb? And he, Jesus is like, come on, man. It's an analogy for Pete's sake. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he, but, he's, but he's saying, that, you know, the spirit, this is what Jesus says. This is John 3, read it. The spirit moves wherever it wishes. You can't contain it. God is going to speak in spite of fill in the blank. And as, as someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus, one who has received the gift of the Holy Spirit, I'm realizing more and more that God doesn't just speak in the ways that I'm attentive to or that I'm attuned to, but he's speaking all the time to people in ways that might surprise me. And there might be movements, there might be groups of people in the world that my tribe, that my group kind of looks down upon that God might actually want to speak to me through. I think that it raises the question, even for me, of 
why would we hold ourselves off or block ourselves off from truth? I think that if it's true, and you said, you know, we believe that that all the created order, you didn't say it like this, but I think it's what you were getting at. All the created order exists inside of God. Like there's nothing that exists outside of him. And so it could be, I think we do this a lot with with science and with with religion, that that there's a lot of times we have unfairly told our students in youth group or told our, our children that once again, truth exists inside the four walls of the church. <laughs> the truth exists. And, and so we're going we're gonna to tell you and we're going to set up the parameters for where you find truth and what that looks like. And then I think what happens sometimes is they go off to college or whatever, and they, they hear a, a biology professor talk about the world and you know all the things that, that we believe God created and they're saying true things about the world and how it exists and, and how it interacts with each other. And so what's happened is we've unfairly put on our teens to say, I'm hearing this truth that's not within the four walls of this church. You know what I'm saying? That is not within the parameters that we've said. This is where truth comes from. This is where truth is disseminated from. And so they have to make a decision. Either the biology teacher isn't speaking truth, and the biology teacher may be like an atheist. The biology teacher may know nothing about God, but if we really believe that God created all and nothing exists outside of him, that biology teacher, whether he's a Christian or not, is speaking about God's world. Like it, It's not like he's talking about something outside of of what God created. Well, well and so how do we help our kids see the bigger... Sort of to your point, it would be impossible for there to be a biology teacher that knows anything about biology that doesn't know anything about God. Right. Because in the very act of knowing biology, if God really is the creator, then we ought not to be afraid of the creation. You know? Like like a revelation that we receive about biology, if it's if it's counter to God, then either God is not God or our view of God is lacking. Is limited. Yeah. Is small. And I mean it's just it's just this 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 idea that that before we go and interact with the world, we have to have everything figured out, or we we have we have all of the truth, and then we go out in the root in the world, and we try to get all of the knowledge out there to fit inside of our worldview. This has been kind of the paradigm of the conservative Christian church in America over the last um, one hundred years. Let's say, really, in this in this fear of. Darwinian science, in this fear of academic intellectualism, in this fear of um, critical, historical, critical, biblical method, that we've become so afraid of all of these things. And so our approach to truth in the world has become, here's what we believe. It's like, it's like a dogmatic creedal Christianity of a very specific kind. And we say, here are the things that are absolutely truth. They're non-negotiables. Okay, now you can go out in the world. And when when a child goes out in the world then and realizes uh, that it it may not it may not be the case. It may be hard to empirically prove that God on day 1 created just this realm, that God on day 2 created just this, that God on day 3 created just this. You know when they go out when they go out in the world and that that thing that they were told is a non-negotiable is not true, then the child essentially questions the whole system 
because they've been given a very small, very limited view of God. And I think that once again, it's this, so I, um, I'm friends with the guy that used to be our eighth grade science teacher. And now he's the principal of the middle school. And, and he, we just have these great conversations. But one thing he says to me, one thing he, he actually tried to get my input on, because, you know, he, part of the curriculum was teaching evolution. And he's like, how do I help these Christian kids? Because I've, I've never told them that they had to believe this. I, I, I've, I try to help them along, but inevitably what happens is they just get so upset at me, even though I try to set the table and say, hey, this is a theory. This is what a lot of people believe. This is what this looks like. And he's like, how do I, how do I help them? And so it, 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 in essence, he is, it was pleading to me, how do I help them understand and he's like, I would even tell them, like, scientists can only go back so far. Like, they can't tell you, you know, they, they, most scientists hold to the Big Bang Theory, but they, they can only trace that back so far. And he's like, I would even tell them, like, maybe you think God started, they can't tell you exactly how it began other than they think this, this emotion, you know, this, this energy, this, this thing happened that, that kind of set all of this in motion. And, and he's like, Maybe you think that's God, you know what I'm saying? He would, he would, but people would just get so upset because he was pushing them or he was asking them to think beyond once again, what it looked like for, for truth to exist or for maybe something to be said that would actually make God bigger, that would actually help them understand, hey, I'm not trying to push you. And this guy is not a believer, but it was so interesting that he was asking me for advice on how do I help these these kids understand what I'm not trying to do and help them understand, hey, I just want you to think about this. Like and and not be offended, not feel threatened, not feel um that I'm asking them to throw everything out that they've ever believed in their life. But we struggle because we want to, and maybe this is what it somewhat boils down to, is I think the church is really about control. And we want to control what people think, how people hear from God, because if we can control that, then we can determine, we can set this the the course for what they're going to do, how they're going to walk, what they're going to believe. Maybe that isn't true. I don't know, but it seems to come back to if I can control how these people think what they think is truth, that they find truth here, then it allows me to to be in control of, once again, maybe even more things than that. So as a result of the rise of the Enlightenment and scientific method and a lot of these things, there is a movement that has become very, very popular in the church, and it's the movement of apologetics. Yeah. There, there are a lot of people that have given their life to proving a measure of the truth of Christianity, and there's different forms of apologetics. So some people give their lives to proving that the Bible is completely true, that the authors are who they say they were, that they're showing the historicity of everything to say that this is true which is also, and that's an enlightenment worldview, that if I can prove that it's historically, that it historically happened, then I win, okay? That's not an ancient worldview. I mean, it's just, you know, the mythologies in which which the the biblical texts were were written were not necessarily concerned with constructing a life based on whether or not something happened in the past. And I think we should consider that because we're so far from that worldview in this post-enlightenment world that we live in. So some people have given their lives to proving that the Bible is true. Some people have given their lives to proving that Jesus walked the earth 
and that everything in the gospels is exactly true. I mean, even, even to the extent of there are people that have spent a lot of time trying to explain that necessarily Jesus fed two different groups of thousands and I, I don't I don't remember which gospels these are in, but like one's a feeding of 5,000 and one's the feeding of 4,000, which in my opinion is you've got one gospel writer who's like, no man, there were 4,000 people. There were not 5,000 there. And I'm putting, and then the other writer's like, dude, you're so wrong, right? I mean, this is what I, this is what I imagine. I imagine that the gospel writer's we're actually trying to, in some ways, correct each other in some of their writing and in some of their order, which the apolo- the apolog- apologists, the, apolo- the yeah, apologists right. who are doing apologetics, right, right, right. Th- for a lot of them, the Bible has to be literally exactly true. And, and they come to the text, not with, not asking the question, like, what is this teaching us for life? <laughs> but everything in here has to be exactly true because if it's not true, then the entire system crumbles. And because we've become so obsessed with apologetics, apologetics in many sense, in many senses have become our approach to evangelism. We have, in the 20th century, we turned people from lovers of Jesus and lovers of the world to lovers of apologetics. That the way you convert somebody in the intellectual world is you go convince them that that. Jesus walked the earth or that the Bible is absolutely true or that six day literal creation is exactly the truth. And what we've done, what we've done by elevating apologetics is that we've really have dismissed the fact that God has always been speaking in all of the world, not just inside the church. And so we have a worldview now that is not complimentary it's completely, we have, we have this idea of incompatible, incompatibilism, incompatibilism. Did I just make up a word? It's incompatible. We have this idea. (laughs) We have this idea that all worldviews are competing. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. That things are necessarily incompatible with one another. So we have these binaries, these polarities, Mm -hmm. there's the Bible and church and there's science, Yeah. you know? And the thing is, if God's the one who gave us being in the first place, God owns biology. We do this in the church as well, where we, I love this pastor because they speak the truth, but this other guy, and we do, we do it even growing up, you know, like it's Calvin versus Wesley and it's... Yeah, it's, <laughs> which is amazing. Like if you read the Institutes of Calvin, there's actually some good stuff to be picked up in exactly. there. Exactly. But as a Wesleyan growing up, Calvin was was the bad guy because it's, you know, it's double negative predestination and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Which I'm not advocating for. Right? No, exactly <laughs> just, right. Exactly. But, but, and I've learned not to, right? Because I'm given this worldview. Right. And John Wesley himself even said, there's just a hair's breadth between Calvin and myself. Yeah, that's right. And, 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 but we and the people that have come after have made it this giant duality, this giant divide between the two. And Wesley never saw it like that in the beginning and and yet we have lived into that we we've, we've we've decided that yes that's exactly the way it is and it's interesting that i think most often it's the people that that come after the forefathers or the people or the the spiritual fathers that take what those people said and take it to they swing the pendulum even further cuz they think they are honoring them or they think they're trying to to replicate or not replicate but just 
take it to the next level when those the original people like Wesley and um well, even back in the Reformation like yeah. a, lo- a lot of people say that the things that we attribute to to Martin Luther <laughs> are not really true to Luther's ideology. I have a I have a friend uh, in my uh, in my studies, my doctoral work, who is a Lutheran, and he's his life work is kind of dedicated to helping people re-understand Luther because he feels like the disciples of Luther really messed up a lot of the th- the heart of what yeah. Luther was trying to say. This is also many Calvinists who love Calvin. They also feel this way about Theodore Beza, who says that kind of Beza out Calvin to Calvin, yeah. and that the version of Calvin that we have in popular Christianity is not true to. Um, John Calvin's kind of earnest attempt to figure out how to do a lived out Christianity in society. And I think the Corinthian church was really struggling with this. Interesting. um, Because I think the apostle Paul addresses it. He says, um, some of you say, I follow Apollos. Some of you say, I follow Paul. Some of you say, I follow Cephas. And in essence, he thinks, he says, why would you cut yourself off from somebody who's, who's giving truth? If Paul says it and it's true, then awesome if Apollo says it, but we but we have these this understanding of of I am Apollos's guy or I am Paul's guy or I am Jonathan's guy or I am I'm Rob Bell no I'm John Piper no I and just the list goes on and on and on and on and 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 how do we look at what these people say and think you know what I believe that I, I think that's true and the understanding of who God is rather than just cutting ourselves off, limiting what God might want to say to me because of a, a potential theological persuasion or once again, political persuasion or once again, ethnicity persuasion, whatever is, you know you want to put in there. If it's true, then, then, then why wouldn't I let God speak to me through those mediums? So I am going to give Joel Osteen some love. What? I'm going to give him go some too love far. right no. now. No, seriously. Uh, I was at a theology conference just three weeks ago where I heard a nun, of all people, present on preaching in the Catholic Church. And she said to the astonishment of the audience, we have a lot to learn from Joel Osteen. And everybody, you know, she's got everybody's attention at this point. (laughs) And she said, no, I'm serious. I'm serious. That's a man who has mastered captivating the masses. He's inspiring. And she uh, did an impersonation of him that was just gripping about of of a a piece that he talked about, about Jesus just being right in front of you. And it was compelling. And I I was sitting there in the audience with everybody else. And, and the fact of the matter is she's, she's telling the truth. What we have done is we've, we've allowed ourselves not to be generous to other people who we think are on the other side of the fence that we've built. Yeah. We've not allowed ourselves to be generous to them. Yeah. You know, I have a Jewish friend who loves, of all people, Joel Osteen. And the fact of the matter is, I'm I'm thrilled that she listens to, is is able to be presented to the gospel is be able is able to be presented the gospel of Jesus in a positive way you know um there there are ministry minded theologians that will listen to this podcast and write me off for lifting him up and if that's you i just want you to consider that the reason that you can't receive anything from Joel Osteen is because he's on the other side of the fence that you've built that's just the fact of the matter yeah um you would be hard pressed to find anybody 
that's all bad. You know? Yeah. And, and I think so. It, it really hits me. And this is a story. I don't know if you saw this story or not, but it kind of blew up in the last couple of days since Sunday. But it reminds me of, once again, if I'm going to cut myself from all truth, but somebody said something that, that the evangelical church has actually um, spoken against on many different levels. But there's a story that came out Sunday and um, is at the Dallas Cowboys football game. Okay. You had Ellen DeGeneres. Okay. Sitting next to George W. Bush. And they were laughing. He's one of my favorite and people. And cutting guys. up. I love this guy. But they were just interacting. They were she she did a video with him. How sweet is that? People gave her the hardest time. Because Oh, and, I imagine I did people not give him a hard time too? I don't know the story, Jeremy, but I would I would imagine because a lot of a lot of conservative Christians that hate Ellen DeGeneres. Which once Love again, they George gave Lauren Daigle right? a hard time for going on the Ellen DeGeneres show. Oh, interesting. I, I wasn't aware of that too. Yeah, you know? that she's saying on the Ellen DeGeneres show and just how could you do that? Blah, blah, blah. blah. You know, like, don't you know sure. what she stands for? Yeah. So man. people just blew up at Ellen from the liberal side saying, you understand this guy would have voted or not pushed forth, forth a bill that wouldn't have allowed you to be married to your spouse, spouse or, or what? I mean, partner. it just blew up. So Ellen goes on her show yesterday and was just was unbelievable. Just says, you know, when I say the, I, I think you should be nice to all people. Uh, she ends a lot of her, she ends, I think she ends her shows with the line, be kind, be kind to all people. I think that's her thing. So she gets on in her monologue and says, when I say that, I don't just mean be nice to people that agree with you. I really mean, be nice to all people, even people that you disagree with. And I was <laughs> She was preaching a gospel. Wow, that sounds I mean, that sounds very Christian in spirit to me. And yet, if I limited God, said so God could only speak through these people or these voices, I couldn't hear what she said and thought, whoa, that does sound a lot like, you've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, you actually got to love your enemy. And we have this this picture at a Dallas Cowboy football game of two people who are on the opposite side of the fence from each so other. So many fences, Jeremy. <laughs> I mean, really, really. I mean, like so many we're American fences. Bigger than Donald Trump's wall fences is what we're. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yet they're laughing, they're talking, and and they and they they had a moment, and and so it's just interesting that she was speaking, I think, what Jesus says a lot. And sometimes people would cut themselves off and, and not even hear that is a better picture of who we are to be. And she gets it. <laughs> she is understanding who Jesus is calling us to be. I may have some to understand, but, if, but God could actually use that in our world. And, and, and maybe we would say that that is God speaking. God, that is a spiritual moment on some level. I have a tweet. You mean you read this tweet? I saw it today. Who's tweeting? It's a guy named David Fitch. I don't even know if I follow him, but it came up on my Twitter feed. There you go. I think it fits it, it kind of it fits into this. It says this. Today, we don't need a church that allows us to fit God into our lives. We need a church that shapes us to fit our lives into God's. And then the next person that that responded said, "As I always say, I have never invited Jesus into my life. He invited me." into his <laughs> um hmm. 
which I think is just a different, it's a different perspective that I think that if we grasped it a little bit more that it's God's world and we're a part of it. It's God's mission and we're just a part of it. It's God's plan for us and he has invited me into it. And it's not me bringing down God to my level and and my understanding about how he can speak or what he should do, but it's me, as Paul said, dying to all of those things and surrendering my life to, to his vision, his goal, his dream. Um, and I think sometimes in the evangelical church, we, we have used the language, I don't know that we've always believed it, but we've used the language of God coming down and me inviting God into my existing life rather than, you know, God's call has always been there. It's me getting rid of my life and dying to those things that would not be for his kingdom and finding my life than in his, which opens up the door to saying, and God could use anything, God God's in it all, and it has nothing to do with him liking the things that I like. It's me liking and, and believing the things that he would be about if I if I believe that he is still active and the kingdom is still breaking out among us. Um, but it's a paradigm shift of not God not fitting into my ideologies, but me leaving those behind and, and turning my life over to his. From the beginning, God has used unexpected things and unexpected people to communicate his truth in the world. It's a burning bush. The donkey. Donkey to Balaam. And it's a it's a couple of women in the book of Judges. And we've got to ask ourselves, we've got to square with that question, how open are we to God revealing himself to us in the world today? The Evangelicals podcast is recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. 